Chapter forty eight, part two of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two by Moncure Conway. Chapter forty eight, part two. Soon after our settlement at Bedford Park, came Edwin Abbey, who took great interest in our village of antique houses, all newly built, in going about which he said pleasantly that he felt as though he were walking through a water-colour. Abbey charmed everybody there by his wit and engaging personality. We were both working for Harper's Magazine, and among the pleasantest of my expeditions was our visit together to the English Lakes, 1879, which resulted in the article entitled, THE ENGLISH LAKES AND THEIR GENIE. Every illustration in those articles represents to me some delightful adventure. We stayed in quaint old hotels in all that region, and Abby's anecdotes were so full of drollery that I did not feel quite sure that he had not mistaken his vocation, and should not have been either a literary or stage comedian. In May 1881 I gave an address before a Society for Promoting Religious Equality, newly formed by students of Cambridge University. Its object was to maintain the principles of the University Tests Abolition Act. This Act of Parliament, opening the universities to persons of any creed or no creed, was not made prospective. Consequently, Keble College, to which only members of the English Church are admitted, was built at Oxford, and the organization of a similar one, Selwyn, at Cambridge was announced for June 1. Its promoters meant to demand incorporation with the university, but Fawcett had framed a measure prohibiting religious tests in the universities forever, and it was in concert with him and other leaders in Parliament that the Cambridge Society was acting. My paper, therefore, was read in Clare College eight days before the inauguration of Selwyn, as yet unbuilt, by the Earl of Powys, Lord High Steward of the University. About two hundred young men were present. Under the title of The Unbinding of Prometheus, I presented my idea of the cords by which thought was still bound, and preyed upon for serving mankind in ways not authorized by the Christian Zeus. I had naturally alluded to the disenfranchisement at that moment of a constituency because of its representative's atheism, and although few present shared Bradlaugh's opinions, the anger against his persecutors was manifest. My enumeration of the burdens on religious liberty which tended to make English thinkers defiant like Prometheus was made on careful data, and in the discussions that followed my paper there was a consensus on the principles of liberty. During this visit I was a guest of Sidney Hickson, a brilliant student of science, soon afterwards appointed professor of zoology in Owens College, Manchester. His rooms were in Downing College, adjacent to the large grounds called The Wilderness. This wilderness, carpeted with long grass, fringed with flowering shrubs, and shaded by blossoming trees, was vocal not only at night but during the day with songs of the nightingales. It was all sweet and beautiful, this wilderness, beside the Greek walls and columns of the college. I was admitted on the floor to hear a debate in the Cambridge Union, whose discussions are conducted as in the House of Commons. About four hundred students were present, the galleries being crowded with ladies and gentlemen. The subject related to the Bradlaugh issue, and was opened with a motion that the parliamentary oath should be abolished. 
The youth who led in favor of the motion was, I was told, a particularly religious churchman. Yet in a speech which would have done honor to any legislature, he affirmed that the oath should be abolished as a restriction on honest thought, an encouragement to hypocrisy, and an impediment to progress. He not only objected to the religious formula, but also to the pledge of support to the monarchy which it sanctioned. He preferred the English Constitution to any other. But if the country saw fit to frame a republic, it should be free to do so. It was maintained, however, by another speaker that an oath to support Queen Victoria, her heirs and successors according to law, would admit of a legal effort to make a president her successor. There was a good deal of republicanism manifested, one speaker declaring that the advance of democracy was not be repressed by the flickering shadow of a dying monarchy. There was also abundant heresy. One speaker, having spoken of atheists as disgusting, despicable, was called to order on the ground that no person could be permitted to use such language concerning the opinions of members of the House. The chairman called upon the speaker to withdraw his words, which he did. It was remarkable to observe what an instinct for parliamentary procedure this body of youths had acquired. There was at all times esprit de coeur, loyalty to the chair, and speeches quiet and simple in language, and to the point. A few days after my return to London I received a long telegram from the leaders of the Cambridge Religious Equality Society, saying that general consternation had been caused by the announcement that the new American minister, James Russell Lowell, was to assist in the founding of Selwyn College, the object of which was to restore creed tests in the university. They did not believe that Mr. Lowell understood the situation, and begged me to explain it to him. I had hardly read the despatch when Lowell called, and I handed it to him. He had gone too far to recede, and merely said he did not consider the affair as likely to mix him up with either party. However, he began his speech at Cambridge with an allusion to the incident. He said that when he was asked whether he knew what he was about, and if he was coming down there to join a conspiracy, he felt like the honest citizen of the sixteenth century who innocently contracted to supply Bonner with faggots. He assured them that his being there had no political or dogmatic significance. He was drawn there as a native of Cambridge, New England, with filial respect for Cambridge in Old England. This was not a felicitous remark for either party, for Selwyn College was not a part of the university for which he felt filial respect, but a fortress raised and armed against it because it was now like Harvard University without any creed test. His high church hosts must have winced when they read next day in the Cambridge paper the following paragraph. The presence of the United States minister on Wednesday among the bishops and other church dignitaries at Selwyn College was unusually suggestive. Mr. James Russell Lowell is the descendant of an old English Worcestershire family, who were led to leave England many generations ago through the persecutions of the church dignitaries of those days, men who held, according to Mr. Lowell's own humorous words, that the right of privately judging means simply that light has been granted to me for deciding on you. Today we see the eminent scholar and poet, the descendant of the Puritans and the son of a Unitarian minister of the younger Cambridge in Massachusetts, associated with English ecclesiastics in furthering the claims of an English high church college, the juxtaposition of Bishop Wordsworth and Mr. Lowell, and their concerted action in furthering the same cause, 
is just one of those things which no one would have ventured to predict, and which must be seen in order to be appreciated. Lowell must have supposed that I had some hand in this paragraph. If so, he was mistaken. I had nothing whatever to do with it. I lectured several times at Cambridge, and made interesting acquaintances, among these being Carl Pearson, now a professor in University College, London. In 1882 he placed in my hand a poem he had written, anonymously, entitled The Trinity, a Nineteenth-Century Passion Play, The Sun, or Victory, of Love. God, when he makes the prophet, does not unmake the man. Locke. It came about the time when, after having printed a discourse on Mary Magdalene, I waked up to the perception that in regarding her as an immoral woman, I had followed a baseless church tradition, and the fact that the writer of this passion play had taken the same uncritical point of view prevented my returning to it at once. But I have since read it repeatedly and find it a powerful poem. Wagner planned a passion play of this kind and wrote the libretto, of which I possess a copy, but he discovered, no doubt, that the Christian world would not tolerate the idea of Jesus touched by human love, and substituted Parsifal for it. On New Year's Eve, in a wintry fog, I made my way through the plebeian portions of Bloomsbury, coming at last to a sign inscribed, The Church of Humanity. Entering by a narrow hall, I found myself in a room that touched my sentiment of reverence. This was the first room in the world religiously dedicated to the worship of humanity. One might feel here that he was beside the manger from which a great influence might come. It was nearly three centuries after the birth of Jesus before Christianity possessed a temple of its own. Auguste Comte died in 1857, and within twenty-five years thereafter his philosophy had received in great hospitable London the vestments of a religion. I had met the positivist priest, Dr. Congreve, at the Priory, the residence of G. H. Lewes, and had remarked the special esteem for him manifested by George Eliot. Subsequently I had several interviews with him, and discovered in him a phenomenal man, a refined scholar, with that elegance of look and presence which marks the real nobleman. But his statements impressed me as curiously academic. He had such unquestioning faith in his creed and church that he might have grown on the left side of the stem that bore Cardinal Newman. He showed no disposition to qualify or to interpret in a strange sense any formula. When I urged that humanity as a whole could hardly be worshipped, so many were its crimes and cruelties, Dr. Congreve simply answered that one loves his mother whatever her faults. But a deity must have no faults. He desired to win to his church the common people, and thought it could be done by cult and ritual. Women especially need symbolical forms and expressions, he said. At the Festival of Holy Women on the morning of December 31, 1880, I counted forty-eight persons, two-thirds being lady of social distinction and wealth. The small room half wainscoted, half blue up to the low ceiling, the walls ennobled by sculptured heads of great men. The small pulpit, barely raised above the floor and surrounded with lofty flowers. Above it a very large engraving of the Dresden Madonna. These combine to make a mystically beautiful frame for some great symbol of all that is supreme in nature. The Madonna and her babe floating in the air were too exotic. The portrait of Comte's much-idealized Clotilde de Vaux, neither spiritual nor beautiful, was out of place among the persons exalted on the walls. 
were all those saints of the positivist calendar detached from their faults, and their virtues combine in one being, would even that miraculous being captivate these forty-eight hearts, or satisfy all of those deep, inexpressible longings that stir within us, with energies transmitted from myriad forms, through immortal ages? Dr. Congreve's discourse was about St. Monica, Beatrice, Eloise, Joan of Arc, others being briefly alluded to, and at the close he read the fine lines from George Eliot's Jubal, O may I join the choir invisible! In the reading he was animated and impressive. Next day, New Year's Day, was the Festival of Humanity, and that too I attended. The church had only been opened in the previous September, and its little organ for the first time uttered its voice that New Year's Day. About sixty were present, among them some fine-looking young men. After the voluntary, there was no singing, Dr. Congreve said that they would be able to translate into their own meaning the words of Isaiah, and proceeded to read the sixtieth chapter, Arise, shine, etc. Then the company arose and stood with open eyes and without bowed heads, while Dr. Congreve uttered an ascription to the great power whom we here acknowledge as the highest humanity, in which the petitional May We occurred twice, the audience responding, Amen. The sermon was an expansion of the benediction, the faith of humanity, the hope of humanity, the love of humanity bring you comfort and teach you sympathy, give you peace in yourselves and peace with others now and forever. Amen. During all this I was not conscious of other emotion than wondering respect for this small company of cultured people, whose religion had entirely turned away from the heavens, and had enshrined humanity. It was all pathetically picturesque, but no more, because this positivist deity was to me another incomprehensible like the triune. No such entity as humanity do I find conceivable. In the effort my imagination is lost in a vast cloud with many nuclei, here of man-faced bipeds devouring or slaying each other, there of men helping each other. But can one define humanity without distinguishing those great ones whose busts look down upon us from the wall, and those who looked up to them with reverence from the vast swarm of irrational man-shaped beings, who set as inorganically as the destructive elements? At times I had my desk at South Place occupied by one or another of the positivists, Henry Crompton, Dr. Congreve's leading assistant, gave us a memorable discourse, and Frederick Harrison several, but in none of their discourses could I find any clear definition of divine humanity. I gradually reached a belief that positivist religion is a refined variety of the general democratization of Christianity. Mankind, in worshipping one or another terrestrial being assumed to be of their kind, are really worshipping qualities and powers that could not possibly exist in any actual being. The very names—Zoroaster, Buddha, Christ, Mohammed—are not personal names, but labels for the stored-up ideals of races in immemorial time. While these systems represent a worship by each race of its own humanity, the positivist—such was my theory—has fused those diverse humanities into one but in detaching a religion of humanity from its traditional sovereigns, it has not relapsed into anarchy, but established a ministerial cabinet in its calendar of saints. Although the positivists are thus not really worshipping an actual but an idealized humanity, this word is ambiguous. 
Could their system be popularized, the collectivist sense of humanity must predominate, and above all the great historic men and women of their calendar be raised the unreason, superstitions, and passions of the masses. But how precious were, and are, these high-principled men and women with their unique philosophic faith, amid the sea of doubts and polemics mostly aimless! How beautiful in my remembrance are the homes and the lives of those whom we knew personally, and how enviable at times their faith appeared! In 1884, when Mrs. Frederick Harrison fell ill, the probability that this lovely and devoted positivist might die filled all liberal circles with alarm, and also the many homes of the poor in which her charities were known. When this danger was suspended over Frederick Harrison, he steadily fulfilled his duties as well as hers towards those who depended on them. At this time I received from him a private letter which I afterwards told him I might some day print, and it is here subjoined. It is dated 28 Gutenberg, 97, 3 September, 1884. I thank you heartily for your friendly letter of sympathy and inquiry. It is quite true that my reply to Herbert Spencer was written, or rather printed, under pretense of great anxiety. It is in a season like this, for this illness has had every element of alarm and distress, that the strength of what is called religion is brought to the test of personal experience. To her and to myself I will say that our belief has been one of unspeakable comfort. At no instant, and in no form, has it failed either of us. One smiles to think how trumpery and how incongruous at such a season are the vulgar resources of theological convention. I have never before so clearly realized all that a human religion means, how completely one's deepest beliefs and hopes coincide with, instead of having mere complicity with, the medical cares and provisions, how one feels to rest on the cooperation of one's fellow-beings, consciously and unconsciously, some of them in sympathy, some in the saving and recovery of health, how the very instruments of science, the morphia needle, and the like, seem revelations, and doctors, relations, friends, and nurses seem transfigured ministers of humanity. I will tell our secretary to send you the printed programs. You will see Times and Pall Mall advertisements of our doings on the 5th, Friday next. At 5 p.m. I give an address on Kant, very much in the spirit which you indicate, and which I largely share. At 6.30 we dine in the Strand, and at 8.30 there will be a social meeting and music at Newton Hall. All are open, and we shall be glad to see you and yours at any of these. I hope to meet you before you return to America, which, in common with all your friends, I do so much regret. I remember across twenty years the brilliancy of that discourse on Comte, and others by Frederick Harrison. It was one of the great experience of life to pick one's way along the narrow and dingy purlieus leading out of the Strand, and pass by an alley into the little hall with the grand name where Frederick Harrison, without any trick of gesture or rhetoric, made every mind and heart one with his own in sympathy, and for that happy hour one in thought. End of chapter 48